Verses 13 through 17, the Bible says, Be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The Apostle Peter wrote this to a church which was scattered abroad, which has fallen under persecution. We believe he wrote it somewhere between 60 and 63 A.D. I've chosen this text on today to talk about the sanctity of life because I think it's important in our day. I think it's important that we grasp hold of exactly um, what we are dealing with in terms of legalized abortion. It's a very difficult issue. It's difficult because... As we've already heard this morning, it is possible to be fully uh, in the mindset of saving lives and at the same time, without a conflict of conscience, take life. It is possible. It's possible to remove ourselves from the very event and to put layers of protection and insulation between us and the event to the point that we forget it's taking place all around us every day. Many of the debates that are being had are the wrong debate, in my opinion. Many times we're talking about the wrong things. In 1997, a young Illinois state senator had before him a bill known as SB 230, a bill designed to prevent Partial birth abortion. Now, I don't want to be too graphic, but thank God this practice has been made illegal in the United States of America. It's a good step in the right direction. On his desk was this bill to protect the life of children who were fully formed and fully viable. They could be born and live and live productive and healthy lives. And yet, at that season of our history, it was possible for a mother to claim anything, whether it be emotional trauma, whether it be that it's just finances have turned down, my husband has lost his job, or just give no real excuse. Just say, I don't want to be a mother. And all the way up to birth, what could happen in the 38th week is you could induce birth, and then kill the child prior to it being born. Remember what I said. It is possible to put layers of insulation, stainless steel doors, gowns and caps and masks and scaffolds and gloves on the situation so that we feel better but the reality of the fact is 
that here's this bill that would protect at the point of viability all children. In other words, you can abort your child, but you cannot abort it after the child is viable. Science says this child's viable at 24 weeks or 22 weeks. This child can live outside the womb. You cannot kill this child. That's all this bill did. It did not take away the right of a mother who found out she was pregnant at eight weeks to go in and take the life of her child. It didn't prevent that. Only in these cases. And it did not prevent mothers who were in life-threatening situations from having induced labor. It didn't prevent that. It provided for that, as a matter of fact. So in 1997, this young Illinois senator is, has this on his desk... And he reasoned like he did in the Harvard Law Review years before. The question of life is one that is hard to answer. If we allow this law to be passed, then we have lost our battle against the pro-life proponents because we have admitted that that child or that fetus is a child, is a human. So if we give protection to any of them in the womb, then we can't stop the legislation which would prevent an abortion at 12 weeks. or Because nothing scientifically changes, no matter how far back you go. And so because this young senator refused to allow himself to grasp the weight and the magnitude of taking the dignity and the soulful life of humans, he voted no. The bill did not pass. He, as a matter of fact, stood and spoke against it. State Senator Barack Obama spoke very plainly on that day. And in the days since, in the U.S. Senate, now President, then Senator Obama, consistently voted to expand embryonic stem cell research, which was the newest way that we can move forward the legislation of abortion. He voted against requiring minors to give, who go out of state to have abortions. He, he voted against a lot causing them by law to have to notify their parents of their decision. The National Abortion Rights Action League gives Senator Obama in 2006 a 100% score on his pro-choice voting record in the Senate for 05, 06, and later 07. In 08, he was questioned during the presidential debate. The term pro-choice and pro-life, do they encapsulate the reality in our 21st century setting? And can we find common ground? He said, I absolutely think we can find common ground. It requires a couple of things. It requires us to acknowledge that there is a moral dimension to abortion. Which I think that all too often those of us who are pro-choice have not talked about or, tried to or we have tried to tamp it down. I think that's a mistake because I think all of us understand that it is a wrenching choice for anybody to think about. People of goodwill can exist on both sides of this issue. 
that nobody wishes to be placed in a circumstance where they are even confronted with the choice of abortion. How we determine what's right at that moment, I think, people of goodwill can differ. And if we can acknowledge that much, then we can certainly agree on the fact that we should be doing everything we can to avoid unwanted pregnancies that might even lead somebody to consider having an abortion. It's a very crafty answer. For in the first part he admits it's a moral tragedy, which in a sense is him admitting it's wrong. And then to say, well, we can all differ on whether it's right or wrong in the moment. It's situational ethics. It's hiding behind the doors. It's keeping it out of sight. But out of sight and out of mind doesn't work when 57 million children have been killed. We have museums for the Holocaust. Only 6 million Jews died. But we have a museum in Washington, and rightly, we should. We have the Holocaust Museum that has in it the hall of what we might call murderers. Men like Pol Pot, men like Mao, men like Stalin, men like Hitler. Evil regimes, all of them. And yet, Stalin, who quite possibly was the worst, we have now exceeded the known number of his killings at 57 million. Most believe he killed somewhere around 54 million of his own people. And so we come to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we say, how, how can I, how can we as Grace Fellowship submit to a leader who does not recognize the dignity and God-given right of all human beings to live? How can we as a church, respect our leader with these horrendous beliefs. Well, we go back to Peter and we put in context his statement. Because it might be easy for us to say, well, you know, when he's doing something that's wrong, we don't have to respect him. But let me just set the context for you. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's writing to an audience, which I said in the beginning. He says in verse 1 of chapter 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that's to a church that has been persecuted, who has been the beginning of persecution has started, and they've been driven out of their homelands, and they're exiled by the government. Okay? But let's go further. In AD 37, in the year AD 37, a young boy was born. He had to be young because he was born. <laughs> in Italy, his name was Lucius Domitius. His mother's name was Agrippina the Younger. She later married, after this birth of her son, the Roman emperor Claudius. And Claudius adopted her young boy and changed his name. Changed his name to Nero, Claudius, Drusus, Germanicus. The adoption and the name change were all part of a plot to see that Claudius' biological son, Britannicus, 
would not become the emperor of Rome, but rather that her son, Agrippina's son, Nero, would become the emperor. In AD 54, just that happened. A 17-year-old Nero rose to power in the Roman Empire. He, because he was young, lived under many uh, advisors. For the first half of his 14-year reign, there was peace. Burrus, the head of the Praetorian Guard, and Seneca, the philosopher, were his main advisors. And they gave good advice. They were wise men. And they helped the Roman Empire live in peace. But the last seven years of his reign were the bloodiest of any reign in world history. Nero was selfish and calculating and incapable of ruling well. He became paranoid, as most dictatorial leaders do. And he began to hear rumors that people were plotting to kill him. So in 55 AD, one year after coming to power, he killed Britannicus. In 59, he executed his mother. Matricide. Very devilish thing. Killed his own mother. In 62, he executed his wife because he thought she was trying to take his power. And finally, he forced Seneca to commit suicide because he no longer trusted him. And from there, things only got worse. In 64 AD, in July 19th, 64 AD, Peter had come to Rome, we believe, in 63 A.D. In 64, a fire broke out in the south part of the city of Rome, and it raged for six days, and it spread, and it killed many, and it burned down houses, and it was just destroying the city. It was about to die, and suddenly it was revived in the northern part of the city, so that now the northern part of the city was burning. It went on for many days. Ten of the fourteen wards in the city of Rome burned to the ground. Thousands and thousands were killed. And it was believed, and it began to be said, that Nero burned the city so he could rebuild it in his own image. And when he heard this, he knew he had to have a scapegoat. And so his scapegoat was the Christian community. He blamed the Christians for being insurrectionists and hating the government. And he began to hunt them down and kill them. Many of you have heard about his famous killings. They're famous because they're hard for us to believe. He stood by and personally presided over Christians being sown into wild beasts' carcasses and eaten by hungry dogs. He took Christians who had done nothing wrong. And he knew this. He took them and he impaled them and he covered them with tar and he used them as torches in his gardens for his parties. Not to mention those that he crucified on crosses, beheaded, all because of his maniacal, paranoid Fear and his egotistical, maniacal grip on power. He did all of these things to the Christians. 
And Peter's writing to the Christians who Nero is killing. Now I ask the first question again. How can I, or how can you, submit to a government that is presiding over the deaths of our children? Peter gives us the answer, right? Look what he says. Be subject. First thing I want to say is we, we submit to our president and to our government so that the glory of the Lord is extended through our lives. That's the first thing. We submit ourselves. We become subject to. This topic of subjection is used in modern day with almost a sneer. People hate this word, but let me just explain it to you. Biblically, subjection means one who has rights, has authorities, has uh, talents, has gifts, and willingly then steps underneath the leadership of another. We have been given God-given rights, and yet, as free men, we place ourselves under the government. We willingly submit to them. That's what Peter says. Be subject to a maniacal murderer who wants to kill you and your children. Be subject to him. That really is the whole sermon, isn't it? I mean, that's it. You wanted an answer? I wanted to give an answer? That's the answer. We must humble ourselves, though we know that we live in a land where wrong is being done, we still submit ourselves for, the, for what? This phrase is important. For what? For the Lord's sake. We don't just submit ourselves because we're passive. We don't just say, well, it would be difficult to resist the government, so I won't. We don't just submit because it's our heritage. We don't just place ourselves in subjection because it's convenient or it's economically viable. We do it for the sake of the Lord. That's why I said we submit ourselves to our president and to our government so that God's glory might be extended. We're submitting ourselves to the rulers God has placed in charge of our lives to preach the gospel. Each of us is commanded by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for our leaders. To pray continually that God might extend them in their life, that He might Bless them, and that he might give them wisdom to rule. Peter also is saying that we, as Christians, should be subject to our authority so that the Lord's glory might be extended. For the Lord's sake, we submit to every human institution, our local, our state, our federal, in the United States, authorities, or in Peter's time, whether it be the emperor or whether it be governors, whatever it is, whoever it is, we submit to it. And we do that so they will praise our good works. I'm afraid that often in the Christian evangelical world, especially conservative Christian evangelical world, there's not a lot of praise 
for us. And the reason often there's no praise for us is because we're not doing this. We are not subjecting ourselves for the Lord's sake. We do it begrudgingly, half-heartedly, with a big protest. And it's not just over the issue of abortion, is it? Let's just break it down. Because some of you would say, well, that's not my issue. Well, okay. I look at my own life this week and I think, I get in my car, I leave this place. If any of you know me, you know how contrary this is to my natural being. I reach above me to my left and grab what? I've just cranked my car, I haven't put it in reverse, what am I grabbing? Seatbelt, why? Why am I doing it? Because the government says I should. Click it or tick it, right? I don't like it. I personally, in, in my ideas of the way human government should work in its best frame, that's not their decision, that's mine. But I don't get to choose what I think is a good law and a bad law. Me clicking the click on my seatbelt doesn't infringe my right to worship God and therefore I have no right to rebel. You see, I think we often cover, we mask the gospel in a jingoistic, far-gone era nationalism and Peter served under much worse Leadership. Much worse. I don't know when the last time you walked by somebody's garden in the government and they were burning Christians, but I've never seen it. And Peter says, submit to them. Now, we know that Peter in Acts chapter 4 says to the leadership that he's under there, when they say do not preach the gospel, he says... Whether it's right for us to preach the gospel or not, that's between you and God. But as far as we're concerned, we will preach the gospel. And you do whatever you have. You understand his, the, the subtext of that is, you do what you have to do. If you have to take us in front of the council and beat us, we'll count it an honor. You have to hang us on a cross, we'll count it an honor. But we will serve God first. But in serving God, we will submit ourselves to you, even as a human leader, in every area except where you infringe on our rights of worshiping God and preaching the gospel. The rare exception is to resist our government. The overriding preaching of the scripture is submit to it. Why? Why would God have people submit to people who are hanging them on crosses and burning them in gardens? Because out of this great persecution rose the one of the great revivals of world history. The gospel moved forward. Their lives were cut short, but the gospel moved forward. So even in the United States where we're not being persecuted nearly like this, we have to wrestle with our rights to stand against the government versus our rights and our call from God to submit to it. So we are to be subject to it 
for the Lord's sake. Secondly, we submit to our president and our government so that the lost world will see that we are pilgrims on our journey to our eternal home. We do it so they will look at us and say, those people are otherworldly. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It goes along with what he's already told us. In, chapter, in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as what? Pilgrims, sojourners, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So we are to submit to our president and our government so that the Gentiles or the lost world might say, these people are honorable. Whether they say it out loud or in their own hearts, they will see these people are sojourners. These people are pilgrims. These people are not like us. They're totally different than us. They have a greater cause than we have. So we submit so that it will be clear to everyone that in our submission, we are doing good. We submit to our president and our government as free men who are servants of God. Verse 16, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. That's, I'm afraid, what I do often in little things. Things I think that don't matter. Like a seatbelt or a speed limit. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's not a big deal. I'm in control of my vehicle. Why should anybody tell me how fast I can drive? Right? And so... In all of these little ways, every day, am I preaching to others that I'm submissive to those who have been put in my charge, in my care? Martin Luther said it this way, in the freedom of the Christian. A Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. There are many who in our day would say, that's right, preach it. But look what he says in the next sentence. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all and subject to all. He's free. And so by being free, he's Lord of all and subject to none. But he's dutifully a servant of all and subject to all. We have freedom in Christ from everything. And yet in Christ we submit ourselves in all things. Why? So that the gospel might be preached. Never do we want a Grace Fellowship to raise any banner as high as the gospel. So even on Sundays where we're preaching about the sanctity of life, and we're thinking about the sanctity of life, and we're calling people to remember the sanctity of life, we want to say there are, even there is one thing more important than the sanctity of life, and it is Christ and His kingdom and His gospel. That's greater than all. So even in this day, we say, we submit ourselves to even government officials we dearly disagree with, passionately disagree with. We submit ourselves, why? So that the peace and harmony of the society might continue, that the gospel might go forward. So we submit ourselves as free men, we become the servants and subjects of all. It's a, it's a paradox, I mean, it's not... Easy to understand these kind of things. The governing principle of our lives is not the authority. 
the authority of the government is not the governing principle of our lives. The governing principle of our lives is that we are serving the Lord. So we might very well have certain rights given to us by a government which we deem to be in conflict with the moving forward of the gospel. And so we even set aside our rights given by our government so that the gospel might go forward. For the Lord's sake we do it. And so we put ourselves in bondage to authorities. Not We don't do that, but rather we say we are in love with God and it's out of our love for God that we submit ourselves to our rulers and our authorities. We don't do it because they're good men. We don't do it because we agree with them. We don't do it because we voted for them. We do it because Christ is king. And he has called us to do it. Whether I like it or don't like it. We subject ourselves for the Lord's sake that the glory of God might go forward to all human government. We subject ourselves so that they may see that we are foreigners, that we are pilgrims, that we are sojourners, that we are different than all other men on the face of the earth. We submit ourselves as free people to be the servants of all. And finally, we submit to our president and our government so that it can be said that we honor all men. Verse 17. In the translation, for, long, for a long time, I think in, in several translations, it was translated like one sentence. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. But I don't believe that's the case. I believe that the first honor all men is the command. Honor all men. Now, how will we honor all men? How can we honor everyone? Love the brotherhood, right? That's the first way that we honor all men. We love the brotherhood. We fear God. We honor our leaders. We honor the emperor. So, we're in honor of everyone. We do these following things. We love those in the church. We take care of their needs. We extend grace to those who need grace. We extend mercy to those in great financial or impoverished states. We live in light of not just a statement that says we are against abortion, but we live a life that says I'm for life. And we do everything within our power to foster a community that champions living. Whether that's abortion or whether that's adoption, which this church has championed for years now. Whether that's re reproductive rights of women or whether that's counseling women who lose children. Or whether it's embracing children and embracing doctors who have previously committed this sin. We should then in this community, one way to honor all is to love the brotherhood. And so whether we say, hey, I know what happened. I know what's gone on before. But regardless of all of that, I love you. And I love the work of God in you. And far be it from me to hold against you what God no longer counts in your regard. That's a way of championing life. Loving those who have suffered. 
more than a... See, I think that the, we have suddenly been trapped and brought into a discussion and we're talking on wrong terms. I, I guess that's how I would end it, is say, let's start speaking biblically about the issue. We're not anti-abortion. We are for life. Life in the womb, life after it's born, and life until it draws its last breath. We are for life. And we're not just saying we're for it, but we're living that way. We're adopting those who need to be adopted. We're fostering those who need to be fostered. We're we're counseling those who are broken because of a past abortion. We're loving a child whose mother tried to abort it and then it didn't work and now it's alive without a mom. Knowing with scars that it lived when it wasn't supposed to live. We go into the nursing home and hold the hand of a mother who cannot speak to us any longer. And the guy next door who babbles out of his mind all day. And far from seeing them as lumps of flesh, we see them as humans. And the, the joy of the gospel overflows in that situation. And the nurses and the doctors and the family members look around and say, these people are pilgrims. They're not like us. They're not from here. You see, I think we've been co-opted into a discussion on an issue like abortion and we're taking the terms handed to us rather than redefining the discussion. What we should be saying is not talking about when life, or excuse me, whether, whether we can abort or not abort, but rather when does life begin. I believe life begins at conception. Yes, I believe that when a cell divides, it is human. At the moment that it divides, it is human. It's not cells scraped off of a wall of a uterus. It's human. As human there as it is at 90. And out of its mind. And dying of a terrible disease. It's just as human then. And at all points in between. And to live my life that way is the call of the Scripture. To honor everyone. To honor all men. Loving the brotherhood. Fearing God. So we live under a maniacal leadership. In Peter's case, he was living under a deadly leadership. And yet, he says, I don't fear the leadership. I don't fear Nero. I fear God. We need to stop cowering in the shadows and stand. Christians in our generation need to find our feet. We need to stand, not just on this issue, but on the issue of the gospel. We need to call to contrast. The reason we're against killing children or ending the life of an elderly man is because the gospel is against it. That's why we're against it. We need to find our foot and stand where the Bible stands. We need to fear God. That is the beginning of wisdom. And we need to honor our president. And this one, for many of you, is very difficult, I know. I mean, just an honest assessment. It was heartbreaking to me in the weeks after the election. Because it seemed to me that the evangelical world's hope was in electing a different president. 
And that came on Facebook, on Twitter, in conversations, on the TV. Their hope was in that we'd have a new leader. And I would say, if that's where your hope is, you will never find peace in this world. You will never find peace in this world. We do not live in a utopia. We do not live in a perfect world. We live in a fallen world. And so, we honor every leader in our life. How can you honor him? He doesn't know you. He probably will never know you. President Obama will probably never visit Grace Fellowship. Right? How do we honor him? We pray for him. Not snarky little prayers about his demise but prayers for his soul. Prayer for his sleepless nights. For none of us needs to pretend we live where he lives. None of us has 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue as an address, and we won't ever have it. And we don't know what it's like to hold the burdens that he holds. And we need to pray for him, for his soul, for his peace of mind, for his family, and for his last years in the office, that by God's grace, he might extend from that office the mercy and grace of God. We should be praying for him. We should, within the limit of the law, again, stand. That's why I preach sermons like this every year, and they're on the internet. And I don't kid myself to think the president listens, but I know very well others who do listen. And so we don't stop preaching on social issues. Where the gospel and social issues meet, we preach, and we preach straightforwardly. So we take that stand both publicly and privately. In every conversation, in every opportunity to write, in every opportunity to even stand in the public square and say what's going on here is wrong. I think it's, it's right for us to do those things. It's not wrong. And I think we honor him, we honor him as the president by talking about him. Children, by referring to him. I remind my children all the time. He's not that man. He's not Barack. He's not even Obama. I slip into that kind of talk. He's President Obama. We give him respect in our conversation. Parents, don't ever think that when you're snarky and disrespectful to him... Your, parent, your children don't read in you the right to be disrespectful to you. And disrespectful to their teachers. And disrespectful to a policeman. And disrespectful all the way down the chain. Because in their little minds, if we don't have to respect the man that's in charge of the whole nation, in the executive branch, why should we respect anybody? So I think in very simple, practical ways we live it. And in big ways, in public ways we live it. But more than anything, we live, we stand, we preach the gospel, the hope. What is the hope? As I end, there are women here 
who will not admit it, and I'm not asking you to, but you have aborted children. And there are dads here who earlier in life paid for a spouse or a girlfriend to end the life of a child. There are those who have actually carried out the act itself. What would we say? What would we say? What we would say is that the gospel, the fact that Jesus Christ lived, means that you have life if you're in him. This is not the unpardonable sin. This is not the place where you go and then you can't come back from. By the grace of God, there is a place for you in the gospel. There's a place, there's a home for you in Christ. How can I be so sure? You say, well, I murdered somebody. I took the life. I, I violated a basic Ten Commandments. How can I be certain that God will love me? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul presided over the death of Christians. We know this. It said that at his feet that the coats were cast of the men who stoned Stephen, the first known martyr in the church. And he went from house to house dragging and beating and and, and, and trying and finding guilty many in that area of the crime of believing in the way and believing in Jesus Christ. He persecuted them. And then he was saved. The murderer, the Christian murdering Paul, Saul became the Christian gospel preaching Paul. There's room in the gospel for you. For all of you. Be in Christ. Ultimately, there's no way escape from your baggage other than Him. Just like there's no escape for any of our baggage except through Him. And always remember 1 Timothy where Paul says, keep this, we should all keep this in mind, where Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. The, the thought that he had done what he had done did not go away. It was just redeemed. Just transferred. So you're here and you say, I aborted a child and I'm saved, but I can't forget it. You may never forget it. It's a reality. But it can be redeemed. And the hope of the gospel can even touch that part of your soul to make you well. So today, on Sanctity of Life Sunday, we leave, hopefully, with the spirit of honor. Opposing the president's ideas on this very crucial issue, but not opposing the president. Arguing for the right of life for the newborn and for those at the end of their life and all points in between. But doing it in such a way that the gospel and the name of the Lord is extended. We do it as free men who subject ourselves to all for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father... As we end, as we have thought about this very...